continue our worship through the preaching of God's word, I invite you to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you this morning again for your grace in gathering us. And, um, we ask that you would tune our hearts towards you in a very specific and unique way that as you've gathered us here this, this Lord's Day. And we come before you as um, those who are keenly aware of our need, our continual, our perpetual need for your grace. And we come to confess uh, our struggles as we try this fallen world, our propensity to sin. We come to confess our hatred of sin that is wrought in our hearts because of your saving grace. And we come to confess our knowledge that has been quickened by the Spirit of God that indwells us of the reality of our salvation, and that is uh, in Christ alone. And the reality of the indwelling Spirit that um, quickens us to walk in righteousness. We come and give thanksgiving we also know that part of that is our, our, our perpetual awareness of our need to confess, our struggle with sin, this side of glory. And so we come and we thank you for such grace, and we come and we confess and we lay our hearts before you that you might tune them ever more uh, poignantly towards you. And we confess our great need that we must have your grace moment by moment. There is nothing in us, in and of ourselves, that we can do to worship you rightly. So hear our hearts cry for you. Hear our desire to walk in righteousness. Fill us this day that we might know you and worship you well. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning... Um, we're going to return to the book of Acts, chapter 20, specifically verse 21. And there we've been in some uh, a bit of a mini-series that we've been uh, working through this language of verse 21 specifically. And there we find the language of the Apostle Paul. We've been tracking Paul uh, here through the book of Acts and his call and his unique role as an apostle to the Gentiles the vessel, the one man that God has called out as an apostle of Christ. Among the apostles of Christ, there stands Paul as the unique point man who will carry the gospel to the Gentiles, who will be the means of kicking open that door of God's salvation to the nations, if you will, in its fullest sense. And so as Paul carries the gospel, we're brought to this climax of response. What must one do to be saved? And Paul is crystal clear in his language. And so we've settled down here to try to kind of lift up the hood and uh, work through the motor and mechanics of what one must do to be saved. And we've talked about the reality of the command that one must repent and believe or exercise faith in Jesus Christ. Repent 
towards God and uh, uh, believe toward Jesus Christ. And so we've looked at that a bit in depth. And this morning I want us to continue there. And I want to note this morning that our message is entitled Jesus, the object of faith. So we've talked about what it means to repent, what it means to believe. And now most poignantly, we're going to look at the object of repentance and belief, specifically the object of faith, and that is Jesus Christ, the object of our faith. So I invite you back there. Just, let's just look through the language again just to get a, a, a flavor of this beautiful language that Paul gives to us here in Acts chapter 20. And um, let's back up a little bit there into uh to verse 20, we'll read verse 20 and 21. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders there before he's going to depart. He's never going to see them again. And Paul has his mind, he's going back to Jerusalem, uh, and then he has his mind on Rome and ultimately on Spain. And uh, we know uh, the, the outcome of Paul, the end of Paul's uh, ministry, the end of Paul's life, and how that turns out. Of course, we'll be looking at that, Lord willing, in the next few weeks. But we know what's about to transpire with Paul. So, And this is the last moment he has with these elders. And Ephesus has been so sweet and so poignant in, uh, his, in his life as an apostle. And here's what he says about his ministry among them. And again, not in haughtiness, but in fact. Paul says this beginning in verse 20. How did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house? solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there Paul sums up in a very tidy manner the very heart of his ministry. I've proclaimed the gospel, and here's the command of God concerning the gospel. Repent towards God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've looked at the background of repentance and faith. We've looked at the background of the two. I want to take a moment just to reiterate that, okay? So we're just kind of going back and sort of checking the boxes here as we've talked about that in in terms of review here. So background for us thinking about the object of faith. So this is sort of the climax. I I want us, Lord willing, to look at the assurance of faith. And again, I'm working off of, of, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. This is sort of a, a culmination of a series that that men of God have long gone over. So this is nothing new under the sun in that regard, but assurance is part of that tidying up. It fits here. So we're going to try to work on that, Lord willing, as um, as, as we continue in this in this beautiful little section here, this beautiful little verse. But by way of sort of going over the background, by way of review, repentance and faith are both commands. They are commanded to all men by God. They're commands of the gospel. So when we call, when you think of gospel commands, when you hear that language of what are the gospel commands, well, they're repentance. The gospel commands are repentance and faith. It's two gospel commands that come to all mankind. So that is to say we have an active role in salvation. So if conversion is to happen, they are, if you will, two things you must do. You must repent towards God and you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith in that regard are both necessary for salvation and both are commanded. Both are required by everyone, right? We see that right in the text here. 
Paul says to this, uh, this is what I, I said to the Jews and the Greeks. In other words, that's a, that's a nice little tidy way of saying this belongs to everybody. These two things are required of everybody. So everyone, if he or she is to be saved, must repent towards God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're both required. Both are connected in this sense. Both repentance and faith display the majesty of God in salvation. So God has chosen the means of repentance and the means of faith as the two pillars of salvation that he has chosen in his sovereign will to most display his glory and salvation among men. They both display the glory of God, the majesty of God and salvation, but they do so in unique ways. They're both connected, but they are distinguishable. Repentance and faith are unique. They're they're distinguishable from one another. They display God's grace and majesty and salvation in, if you will, two different directions. Repentance is directed towards God, and we talked about that being in a very general sense, directed towards the Godhead, the triune God. Directed towards God in a general sense, but God as creator, God as lawgiver, God as judge, God as possessor of heaven and earth. The triune God against whom sinners have sinned. Against whom sinners have sinned and whom sinners must ask for forgiveness. That's where the repentance is headed towards God in a general sense. Here, let me go over the catechism again because our catechism does really well with these two notions, these two commands uh, of salvation. Catechism concerning repentance. Repentance unto life is a saving grace by which a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and understanding of the mercy of God in Christ, does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and striving after new obedience. That's very thorough, but very good. So repentance stems from what? Fear of God, right? Repentance is that understanding, that knowledge, that awareness, that reality that settles in on our soul, that God is lawgiver and we have broken his law. And we are responsible. We are accountable to our creator, our lawgiver, the one who is possessor of heaven and earth. And to the triune God, in a general sense, we are commanded to repent. So it's a keen understanding that God assesses our lives fully. Everything that we think, everything that we do, are known by God and assessed by God according to his holy standard, which is what? His holy character, his very being, the essence, the purity, the holy perfection of God himself is the means through which he will assess our lives totally. So there's the bar and there's the need, the necessity of repentance towards God. Now, faith is directed towards God in a very specific sense. Faith is directed towards the God-man, Jesus Christ. God who becomes man in order to be our Savior, the one mediator between sinful man and holy God. Our faith is directed towards God, the Redeemer, and the person of Jesus Christ. Catechism concerning faith. 
A catechism says this, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. Notice the language of both are saving graces. By which we receive and rest upon him, that being Christ, alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel. Now there again, a very nice, tidy, healthy definition of faith. So that's a, a little look at the background. That's a little bit of review in terms of what we must do to be saved. What we must do to access salvation. We must repent and we must, and we must repent towards God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's look a little bit at the foundation of faith into Jesus. The foundation of faith into Jesus. So Jesus Christ is the object of faith. There is no other. There is no secondary object. There is no uh, a links in a chain to the object. There's one faith directed at one object of faith. The hope of salvation is faith in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus and Jesus alone is the object of faith. The object of faith is the most important thing about faith. Now, we hear a lot of language about faith, right? And a lot of notions about faith. And there's kind of this uh, a generalized just uh, notion of you got to have faith. And that covers, covers a, a spectrum of thoughts and, and concepts and notions among fallen men. We just got to have faith. Just believe. But Scripture is very clear. God's Word is very clear to us. There is one hope of salvation, and that comes through faith into Jesus Christ alone. There is no other hope outside of faith in Jesus Christ alone. So that is the most important thing about faith. We, we talk about faith and we, we use all kinds of adjectives to describe faith. Some kind of, some kind of uh, generalized, mysterious faith in and of itself. Faith has no meaning, no purpose, unless it's directed to Christ alone. The most important thing about faith is the object of faith. That is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the central objective truth about the gospel of Christ found in the Bible. That is to say, saving faith is not a subjective feeling. It has nothing. To, you may have some wonderful feelings concerning the reality of your faith in Jesus Christ. There may be great emotion tied up. There may be moments that you connect in your life to a, a space and time that was very emotional related to your having faith in Jesus Christ. All of these things could be true, but faith in Jesus Christ is not a subjective feeling. Faith in Jesus Christ is an objective truth, a response to the objective truth of Jesus Christ offered in the gospel. Faith is objective. It is laying hold of a real objective Savior. It is laying hold of that Savior by the means of faith. So saving faith is not subjective in any way. Saving faith is focused on the objective reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anything less is to fall short of true saving faith. All other ground is sinking sand. Now the first little sub point there I want you to note is that faith points toward 
Lord Jesus. Now, that may sound a little redundant, but we need to see this thing as layered to its fullest extent. So we're going to kind of pick apart and be precise with the language if we can here. Faith points toward the Lord Jesus. Saving faith is directed toward Jesus. It's oriented towards Jesus. It is literally into Jesus. So repentance faces God in a general sense, right? God is creator. God is lawgiver. God is possessor of heaven and earth. Repentance faces towards God generally. Faith faces Jesus Christ specifically. Repentance focuses its focus on God as the God who is offended by our sin. Repentance deals with that reality. We're talking about God creator, God lawgiver, who is offended by our sin. And because God is the perfect, holy lawgiver, then according to his character, he must punish sin. Sin is an offense to God, to his character. His character is holy perfection. So his lawgiver, his law is holy perfection. It's a reflection of his character. And his law has been broken. We are violators of his law. So he must punish violators. Least he violate his own perfect character. Holy perfection. The law comes from the character of God. The law is a reflection of his character. All of his character is sinless, holy perfection. And we have violated that law. If God is to remain just to his character, he must punish sinners. Let me put it like this. Let me ask it. Let me, let me put it in a question. Now, this is a loaded question, but let me put it in a question so this will stick with you. If there were no Redeemer, would we still be commanded to repent? Yes. You bet your boots. Why? We have sinned against a holy lawgiver. And for him to do anything less than require our punishment, lay a penalty on our guilt, he would no longer remain holy and just to his character. Therefore, the requirement of repentance, the demand of repentance, God's holy character demands repentance. God's holy character doesn't demand a savior. With me? That's grace. That's grace that elevates his holy character as lawgiver. That's the apex of his holiness. Here's a perfect lawgiver that doesn't have to give grace, but he must demand repentance. And yet we see this spill out and we see the fullness, the fullness of the reflection of his holiness spill out in this giving of grace in the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. But if Christ were not given, God would be full within his rights. Yet repentance would be demanded. So repentance is focused on God as the lawgiver. Faith, however, praise God, is also necessary because faith is into, towards Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. God has sent a Redeemer because God is 
that God is reflected most gloriously in his offer of grace and a redeemer that we do not deserve. And there we see the twofold nature of salvation. Repentance, ooh, ooh, ooh. demanded rightly. Nothing we can do. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect redeemer, the unique God-man who has taken on flesh that he might serve as a redeeming substitutionary sacrifice for all who repent and believe on him. So belief, faith faces Jesus. It's toward God the Savior. It's toward God the Redeemer. God the rede- God who is redeeming the world through the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is directed towards Christ. And there's the great hope. There's the great joy. There's the great fullness. There's the completion of the circle of God in salvation. Yes, there is the man to repent. Yes, there is the necessity of repentance before a holy God. But there, where is the hope? There's the hope. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's the promise of God that God is redeeming the world to himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, who, will be, who will take on flesh and become a vicarious, substitutionary, atoning sacrifice for all sinners who repent and believe on him. And here's the language. Here's it ties, tidied up right here in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. Listen to the language here. Now, all these things are from God. Well, that should wake us up. This is from God. The salvation from God is from God. The God who has reconciled us in him through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, there's a little something we won't get off on a tangent here, but there's a little something for us to settle into right there. We have a ministry of reconciliation. So of all the ministries that we're given, and it's all in there, and it's all beautiful, it's all glorious. But at the foundation of it is this beautiful reconciliation of our ministry of reconciliation. Why? Because the reflection of God's salvation extended to us in Christ. We're being reconciled to God in Christ. And a reflection of that is our ministry of reconciliation that spills out in a multiplicity of ways and always reflects the glory of God in salvation offered to us in Christ. Verse 19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There's the language. There's the beauty. Right there's the glory, the hope of salvation in Christ. Not counting their trespasses against them. And uh, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now there's the verse. There's the verse that carries us forth as ambassadors that moves us forward to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ into this fallen world. So the object of faith is God in the flesh. God in the flesh who is reconciling the world to God. Saving faith is directed towards, literally, into the Lord Jesus alone. Next, I want you to kind of focus in on faith that is prioritized, that prioritizes the Lord Jesus. Our faith prioritizes the Lord Jesus. In other words, it elevates the Lord Jesus. 
Certainly faith is elevated among the grace gifts of God and salvation. But also it's elevated as a grace gift in salvation because it is the means that God has chosen to most elevate his grace. So faith shines a spotlight on grace. That's why faith is elevated among the gifts of grace and salvation. Faith is elevated because it is the means through which God shines the spotlight most poignantly on his grace. So faith is prioritized. Or, or she, yes, faith is prioritized, but also faith prioritizes the object of faith. And there's the prioritizing of grace, the object of faith itself. That is Jesus Christ. So saving faith, if you will, is about Jesus. It's about the Lord Jesus. Are we wrapped up in it? Are we caught up in it in a most glorious way that we can never fully even lay hold of? Yes, yes, forevermore, yes. But in that reality is the focus, the elevation, the apex view of the object of faith, which is the Lord Jesus. Now, just there in the language, um, where Paul tells us in verse 21, repent towards God, and we know the general sense there. And then it says, exercise faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Some, uh, some of your texts will say Christ. Some of your texts don't have that. Um, I'm really going to focus on the names there, the Lord Jesus first. And we're going to look at that in terms of, of Jesus being elevated in, or prioritized in faith. And then we'll look at Christ because the word that, or, or the title Christ given to him, the anointed one, also speaks to the reality of, of who he is. But first we're going to look at Lord and Jesus in a primary reference by these names of who he is and how he is prioritized. So the name Lord they're used in the Lord Jesus used here by Paul. Lord points back to the Lord of the Old Testament. The Lord who is in covenant relationship with Israel. So the Lord here that's used here to describe Christ is the Lord, the same Lord that in the Old Testament is used to describe is used as a covenant name for God, the God of Israel. Same name. So it points back to this, this name that is given to God as covenant name, that God has distinguished for himself as his covenant name to his covenant people. What is that name? What does the Lord point back to here? Yahweh, right? Yahweh. Now, there's variations of how people might try to pronounce that for us. And our time as English speakers, Yahweh is about the best we can get. Uh, so you know what I'm saying. It's the covenant name of God. So it's pointing back to Yahweh. Lord. So this indicates that Jesus is the covenant God of Israel. That's what Paul is saying here. When he refers to this Nazarene who has claimed to be the unique God man, when he points back to Jesus and he says, yes, Jesus Yahshua, God saves. That man is the God man. He is the Lord Jesus. And bang, there he goes, right back. He said, this man is the God man. He's God himself incarnate. He's the same God as Yahweh. That's what he's saying here. He's the incarnate one with all right authority and power to redeem his people. And he's pointing back. 
and connecting Jesus with the covenant God of Israel. Luke 2.11 For this day in the city of David, there is born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now again, we're going to look at Christ, but right now we're primarily focusing on that name, the Lord. Right there in Luke 2, same thing. The one who is born to you that we're, that we're proclaiming a Savior is Christ, the anointed one, the anointed Yahweh. What? The anointed God of Old Testament Israel. John 8.52, or excuse me, 8.58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you. Now this is Jesus speaking himself in his earthly ministry. I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now that's Jesus declaring his eternality. He's using this language very specifically and very intentionally. What's he pointing back to? Can you think of an Old Testament verse? specifically that he's referring to when this when this arose this this concern about Jesus in relation to Abraham and then just blows all that out of the water and jumps right to the point this this concern you have about me in, in regard to Abraham father Abraham let me tell you something about our relationship before Abraham was ever born I am and they know exactly his reference. Where is he taking them to? Where is he taking us to? Where is Paul going back to here? Exodus 3.14, right? Exodus 3.14. There God said to Moses, I am who I am. He's commissioned Moses as his point man to deliver his people out of Egypt. And Moses is fearful, and rightly so. And then God finally, and he's he's concerned, and he's worried, and he has doubts, and he's going to and fro, and to and fro, in his faith concerning God's call to him in this role. And finally, God Almighty just says to his servant Moses, Look, you're my servant. I've chosen you. I'm going to see you through because I am who I am. This is my covenant name among my people. I am the eternal God who has created you. I am the eternal God who will redeem you out. I am the eternal God of all of creation. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel. They were a little worried about it too. They were a little worried about Moses being commissioned by God to deliver them out. This is what you tell the sons of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now, Paul, we fast forward and Paul right here in this language says, Jesus Christ is that same I am. Same language, same covenant name, same God. I am has taken up flesh and dwelt among you. As redeemer, as savior. Just as the covenant God of Israel delivered his people out of Egypt, so too will the covenant God of all God's eternally redeemed, the elect of God, so too will he in space of time deliver you out through his bloody cross. I am who I am. That's the Lord here. That's Jesus declaring that he is God. God the Redeemer. God, the God man, God who has taken on flesh to you 
to, to, to dwell among men, to unite himself to sinners, and to there die a substitutionary atoning death on behalf of his people. So all that God is as Redeemer, Lord, God with all power to save, is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, only the suffering of the God-man can save, right? And we talked about repentance. That's demanded whether there was a Savior or not because we have offended a holy God, an eternally holy God. And only an eternally holy God can rightly stand in the place of sinners who are guilty before an eternally holy God. So God has taken on flesh and come down in the person of Jesus Christ. And there Christ has gone to the cross. Where at the cross, he bore the white hot wrath of God the Father, poured out on him as a substitute as a sin bearer on behalf of his people, all those who would repent and believe in him. And there he eternally satisfied the wrath of God, the eternal son of God, fully satisfied eternally the righteous wrath of God in space and time on the cross. He's the only one who can do that. God is eternal and he's eternally offended at our sin. There's nothing we can do about it in and of ourselves. Only God can bear the white-hot wrath of God eternally. Only God can eternally pay the sin debt of an eternal, of eternally offended God. Here at the cross, Jesus Christ eternally bears the sin debt on behalf of his people. And there he takes his righteousness lived out under the law, full perfection under the law. His righteousness lived out as the God-man, uniquely God, uniquely man, fully God, fully man. And there he imputes his righteousness into our account. And there he takes our sin debt and bears it in his body. Only God, the suffering of the God-man, can save. Now let's think about the name Jesus. Yeshua, God saves. So the name speaks to the reality of him being a substitutionary sin bearer. He's one set apart by God. He's set apart by God to serve in three roles for us. He serves us as prophet. He serves us as priest. And he serves us as king. So he's prophet, priest, and king to us. He is our prophet because he is the God-man who has come and perfectly declared who he is. He is our priest and that he has not only entered in on our behalf as our priest, so he goes before the throne of God in heaven as he ascends the cross. He's also ascending the throne room of God the Father in heaven. He goes into the heavenly holy of holies. And there he goes as priest to represent his people. And not only does he go there as priest to represent his people, he also simultaneously goes there as sacrifice. So he's not just the priest who is offering sacrifice. He's the priest who is the sacrifice. 
And there on the cross, when he's dying in space and time as a sin bearer for his people, he is simultaneously, spiritually speaking, and a truest sense of the word. There in the holy holies, the tabernacle of heaven, there entering in as our high priest, representing us, and then also offering the perfect sacrifice to eternally pay for our sin debt. That is himself. He is also our priest, and he is our king. And that also brings us to that combination of Jesus, Yeshua, God saves, and the Christ, the anointed one. He is the resurrected one. Without a resurrection, there is no Savior, right? No salvation without the resurrection. He is the resurrected one. So he is both Lord and Christ. He is the anointed one. And both of these realities, both of these names, both of these titles that he holds rightly are proven and validated in the resurrection. He is the resurrected Savior. And he is now seated where? At the right hand of God the Father. Now there's the eternal declaration of him Fulfilling his role of Christ. Christ was appointed to him as what? What is Christ? He's the anointed one. He is the one who was chosen by God. So God the Father, according to his sovereign will, appointed God the Son. And God the Son in his full pleasure and and complete unity with God the Father and God the Spirit takes himself and subjects himself to the Father and, and, and leaves heaven and wraps himself in flesh, lives a perfect life and dies an atoning, sin-bearing death on behalf of his people. And there he's now the Christ, validated in his resurrection because in his resurrection, now he has ascended to the right hand of the Father as the anointed one, where now we look and see Christ has now re- has been resurrected and ascends to the rightful throne by the Father. He is indeed the anointed one. And the anointed one is indeed the is indeed Jesus himself. Jesus, the one who saves. Everything he said in his earthly ministry about himself was fulfilled in the resurrection. It was validating. Everything he said about himself, everything he said about himself as a sin-bearing Savior is true. Validated in the resurrection. He is the God who saves and he is the anointed one. He is the Christ, all validated in his resurrection from the dead. Now, that brings us lastly to faith, being a faith or saving faith, being a faith that possesses the Lord Jesus. So certainly we see that Jesus is prioritized in faith, but faith also possesses Jesus. That is to say, faith lays hold of Jesus. So saving faith is most most poignantly uh, the union with a sinner and Lord Jesus, the Savior. That is saving faith. That is the possessing of Jesus. Saving faith possesses Jesus. It lays hold of the Savior. It unites the sinner and the Savior. That's what faith does. So we possess Jesus in that it is into Jesus in which we place our faith. So saving faith lays hold of Jesus. Saving faith moves the soul into union with Jesus. There is a real spiritual reality of saving faith where the soul of the sinner is moved into union 
with Jesus Christ. That's the possessing of saving faith. So faith that saves us is a faith that saves us because it makes us one with the Lord Jesus. There is no saving faith without the soul being made one with the Lord Jesus. So Jesus saves us through faith. Romans 4, 3-5 speaks directly to this reality. For what does the scripture say? Abraham worked? No, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wage is not, is not, is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. So if you work for something, you're not working for favor. If you work for something, you're not receiving grace. You're working for what is due. In our case, all that we can work for is death and judgment. We have the capacity in and of ourselves to work, 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 work for death and judgment. But Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. So his faith was carved out, marked out, checked off as righteousness. Why? Because his faith was in Jesus Christ. Why is faith credited as righteous? Because of the saving faith that is into Jesus Christ. It possesses him. It lays hold of him. That's what gives it a faith that is credited as righteousness. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who, here it is, justifies the ungodly. Amen. Praise the Lord. Jesus Christ justifies the ungodly. There it is. That's why faith must be in Jesus Christ because there is no other Savior. There is no other God-man. There is no other possibility of a being that can justify the ungodly. Only God can justify the ungodly. Faith lays hold of Jesus and is credited as righteousness. His faith is credited as righteousness. So faith is counted as righteousness. Why? Because it includes Jesus. It lays hold of him. It possesses Jesus as Savior, as prophet, priest, king, the fullness of God in salvation offered to sinner. It possesses that God-man. That's why. Faith is credited as righteousness because it includes, lays hold of, possesses Christ. That's why, if you will, you know, Brother Mark was talking this morning in our Bible study about all the edifices that man will raise, you know, to their gods. Really, which is a reflection of their, grandi- their aggrandizement of their self or, or, or self-deceived aggrandizement of themselves. There's always, there's always an edifice. It's always, it's always erected, right? It's always elevated. It's always raised up. It's always lifted high. Well, see, in reality, Jesus Christ is that. Jesus Christ is that glorious castle high on the cliff. He is that. He's the apex reality of saving faith. He's the object of saving faith. Jesus Christ is that pearl of great price set, magnified in the brooch of faith. Elevated in the brooch of faith. He is that high castle set upon the great cliff 
of faith. And we laid hold of him. So what we are to do is affix ourselves to the fact of saving faith that justifies. Saving faith that justifies, justifies because it is given capacity to justify and that it lays hold of Jesus Christ. Faith is the link that connects us to Jesus Christ. That, In that sense, it is Christ is prioritized in saving faith. Now I want you to hear some good language from our confession concerning this reality of saving faith. And Jesus Christ being the object of our saving faith. So the principal act of saving faith, uh, excuse me, the principal acts of saving faith focus directly on Christ. Accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for what? For justification, for sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Well, that covers it all, doesn't it? So we lay hold of Christ for the hope of salvation and all its majesty and all its revealed elements and aspects. All our hope is in Christ alone. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Confession again, quote, faith that receives and rests on Christ and his righteousness is the only instrument of justification. Yet it does not occur by itself in the person justified, but it is always accompanied by every other saving grace. And we talked about that. It is not a dead faith, but works through love. That is beautiful language from our confession. The love of God extends salvation. It extends salvation through faith. And faith is elevated And all these grace gifts that are given to God in salvation, faith is elevated. Why? It's elevated because faith shines the spotlight on the grace of God. By faith, sinners become justified. By faith, what happens? We lay hold of Christ, but what happens there before the throne of God? When Jesus Christ, now the anointed one, enters the holy of holy in heavens as our representative priest and sacrifice. What transpires there? What transpired there and on the cross in space and time simultaneously? What spiritual truth transpired before the spiritual God who made us and condescended to save us from our sin? What happened there? What took place there? Well, there we legally, by the standard of God's law, God's moral law, we legally became one with Christ. What happened on the cross was a legal transaction. When we talk about being justified, that was a legal transaction based upon the moral law of holy God. And there we were legally joined with Christ. Here's what happened. Christ's obedience... Obedience on the cross becomes the sinner's and the sinner's sin becomes Christ. There's the great exchange. All of Christ's obedience on the cross, his passive obedience, laying himself before sinful man and bearing the cross on our behalf 
There, his obedience on the cross becomes ours. What was his obedience? Well, it was, it was passively laid out on the cross, but what was it? His perfect life, his active obedience. He lived perfectly under the law. He is a sinless God-man. So now what he has to grant into our account is his sinlessness. He's the perfect Savior. By God's standard, he's perfect. And he's the God-man. He's eternally perfect. Living out perfectly under the law. And there he exchanges his obedience, his perfection for our sinfulness, our violation of God's law. That's the great exchange. His righteousness for our sinfulness. There it is. There it is. There it is. Christ pays for the sinner's sin and grants the sinner his righteousness. How is it that sinners are justified by faith? How is it? Sinners are justified by faith because saving faith receives and rests upon Christ alone. That's the reality. That's the reality of saving faith. It receives and rests. Amen, somebody? Rest upon Christ alone. Alone. Now, I just want to deal with the, um, a little bit of application at the end. We'll just kind of lay that. I usually layer this through, but I'm just going to dump a little application on you as we close out here, okay? So here's the great question this morning. Here's the great question of life. We're in uh, unprecedented times in the culture. I mean, there is stuff flying at us from every direction. We have more access to information than any other human beings on the planet at any other point in time. Information is instantaneous, and it is swirling around us. Our heads are spinning. There is agitation and violence and vileness and ungodly standards that are swirling around in this whirlwind of information. And yet here's the great question in all of life. Have you, by faith, received Christ? There's the question. Have you? Well, here's the great answer to that question. Here's the great hope to that grand question. Rest upon Christ alone as your perfect Savior from sin. Receive him and rest upon him, and you will find a perfect Savior. There is no other hope. There is no other solution to the frailty, to the sinfulness, to the fallenness of man. There is no other hope. We have all kinds of of possibilities thrown out there in our culture. We have all kinds of of platforms and and probabilities and proclamations that flow towards us constantly. There is one objective abiding truth that we find in God's word that is eternal and true, and that is the hope of a glorious Savior the God-man Jesus Christ. There is no other. There is no other hope for you. There is no other hope for any other man, woman, or child on this planet anywhere at any time. There's one Savior. 
One God, one hope, one Savior, one promise, salvation in Christ alone. Have you by faith received Christ? Now, there's other kinds of faith, right? Other kinds of faith cannot save you. There's one saving faith. There's other kinds of faith. There's even general faith that might sort of be directed towards God, kind of. We can't really tell because there's language like, well, you just got to believe in the man upstairs. You ever heard anything like that? That's not saving faith. That may be a type of faith. It's not saving faith. That's a general kind of toss at some faith type language of some cosmic possible God or God somewhere out there in the atmosphere. It's not saving faith. Now there's faith in false gods. There's all kinds of faith and all kinds of religions that direct faith towards God in a general sense. But it's faith towards God in a false concept and a false construct and a false religion. Why? Because it's not faith that's directed into, towards, and possessing Jesus Christ as the one saving redeemer of man. Thus, it is a false faith and false gods. Why? Because it's not directed toward Jesus. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as he's promised in the gospel. All other faith is sinking sand. Faith in the progress of man. That's pretty common these days, is it not? Well, we're just, you know, techno- we're just developing this technology and we'll continue to progress with technology. And ultimately, technology is going to be our savior. It's going to answer all our problems. And we're going to build it and, and, and uh, uh, progress in it. And we're going to take care of ourselves. And we're all just going to have a utopia. And it's going to be great. We're all going to get along. We're just going to, we're going to modernize ourselves enough until we just all get along and solve our own problems. It's just faith in the progress of man. Now, what that is in reality is a false understanding of the reality of mankind. We are created in the image of God, and we are fallen in Adam. We are born sinners, and we live out our life as sinners. And outside of Christ, we will die as sinners and be rightly judged in eternal hell forever. There is no hope. There is no saving faith in modern man or the progression of man. Why? Because we're fallen and we have no capacity to save ourselves. That is a false hope. The goodness of man is a false concept. It's a misguided view of mankind. We are born sinners. We must have a Savior. The only Savior is Jesus Christ. The only faith is a faith that is in Christ. That faith can save. The act of believing in itself is not our righteousness. It's a faith that lays hold of Christ. Okay, We've got tons of people that sit in churches pretty regularly, and they have a faith. But it's just a faith that holds on to itself. It's just a faith. It's just kind of generally generally put out there and a concept of some kind of hope in God. 
that is somehow uh, connected in some way maybe to Jesus Christ. But it's just a, it's a faith that holds on to itself. That's misguided. It's believing in itself for righteousness. It turns into works. And it will not save. Again, let's go to our confession about this misconception, this, this, uh, this, this falsehood of believing in faith in and of itself. God imputes Christ's active obedience to the whole law. That's his sinless life. God takes his sinless life and he imputes it. Now, where does he impute it? And his passive obedience, that's his death on the cross. So you got his active obedience and his passive obedience. His sinless life and his, and his vicarious death on the cross. God the Father takes that reality and he imputes it somewhere. He imputes it to the sinner who repents and believes on Christ as our whole and only righteousness by faith. There it is. We are not justified by faith for faith's sake. We are justified by faith that lays hold of Christ because Christ fulfilled the moral law of God the Father on our behalf and there he imputed it to us in the great exchange on the cross. Do you see that? That's vital to your purpose as a Christian. That's what has happened. That's the reality. That's the great hope. So this faith is not this faith is not a self-generated faith it is a gift of God. The requirements of the moral law must be met and they can only be met in the God man Jesus Christ. The holiness of God is the standard. Faith is not saving faith for faith's sake. Faith is a grace gift by God that's elevated because it magnifies the grace of God granted to us in the object of faith that must be Christ alone. He is the only one who has lived a perfect life under the law and gone to the cross and died a vicarious death in the place of sinners that he might impute his righteousness into our account and bear our sin debt in his own body. There, eternally, justifying the sinner before a holy God. There is no other hope of reconciliation. There is no other hope of being justified before a holy God. God's holiness is the standard. Christ is the perfect sin bearer. So here's a question, again, an application. Stay with me because, oh, how we live here sometimes. Have you ever struggled over the assurance of salvation? Now, we're going to talk about it a little more in length, Lord willing, as we come uh, in, in future, uh, future times. But let me just ask you this while we're here. Have you ever struggled? I have. I was at this point this week. I was at this point this week. I was so um, just enraged at one of my children that I, after I would um, asked for forgiveness from my child and tried to go back and and deal with him understanding my sinful behavior and how I was not honored to God, I, I went back in my room and it flashed across my mind, are you even saved? After all this time, y'all, are you even saved? And so here's what happened. I didn't think about my faith. I didn't think about the time that I was saved. 
What I thought about was Jesus. And that's what you have to think about. If you ever struggle with assurance of salvation, you don't think about the moment of your salvation. You don't think about the emotion of your salvation. You don't think about the process of your salvation. You don't think about the action of your faith. You think about Christ, who is the perfect Savior, who by grace of God you have laid hold of in faith. And you rest right there, and you'll find assurance of your salvation. And that's important for us in our busy lives, in our secular world, in our worship of time. We've got to get out of here and get going on something else. You settle in for a moment. And you think about Jesus, your perfect redeemer. That's how you deal with assurance of salvation. Focus on Christ and not your experience, not your circumstances, not the measure of your faith, not the quality of your faith, the object of your faith. You focus on the object of your faith. Are you justified by faith in Christ? Are you justified by a faith that has laid hold of Christ? That's the great question. Now, for assurance, you center your thoughts and prayers around the worth of Christ. Hear me as your dear brother. Hear me as a brother in this role. You focus your prayers around that reality, the worth of Christ. You read your Bible with with the purpose of seeing and savoring the worth of Christ. You fill your life with preaching about the majesty and splendor of Christ. Trust the Scripture. Listen to 2 Corinthians 1, 19, 20. Trust the Scripture. Fill your heart with Scripture. Fill your heart with Scripture as you see the majesty of Christ in Scripture. Listen to this language. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Sylvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. Amen, somebody? Yes in him. For as many as our promises are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. There's your hope of assurance right there. Your salvation, your faith that is laid hold of Christ is yes. Forevermore, yes, amen in him to the glory of God. You focus on your Savior. Hear me, dear brother and sister. You focus on your Savior. Don't get caught up in your experience. Don't get caught up in your circumstances. Don't get caught up in the whirlwind of our times. You settle in and you focus on your Savior. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for our time here. We thank you for this language of Scripture that we cannot begin to even wrap our minds around in full capacity but by hope, by the glorious hope that we have in Christ that we lay hold of by faith, we cling to your promises. We cling to your truth. And we cling to our Savior that you have promised to us by your sovereign, marvelous, glorious grace. And there we live And there we breathe and there we flourish and there we worship you to the glory of your great name. We thank you and praise you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.